Good morning. You are listening to KPOO San Francisco 89.5 and on the World Wide Web at KPOO.com. This is Prison Focus Radio. Slavery is back. In fact, it was never abolished. The 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution abolished slavery, except in prison. At the current rate of incarceration, by the year 2010, the majority of all African-American men between 18 and 40 will be in prison. The state as their captor. It's going to take people who are willing to fight, not people who want to negotiate with the enemy. Deal with 
All right, beautiful people, I want to thank you for joining me. I am Nube, your host of Prison Focus Radio here on KPOO San Francisco 89.5. We are still in a fun drive, so I want to encourage all of you at this time at the top of the hour to make your donation to this beautiful station. I want to tell you how grateful I am that we have this very precious hour to speak on prison-related issues 100% through and through, um, without compromise. So please consider making a donation by going to kpoo.com and you can make a donation there by credit card, also uh, via PayPal. If you need to send your check in, you can make that out to KPOO. And then KPOO PO Box 156650, San Francisco, California, 94115. And yes, they say your generosity is greatly appreciated, but it is, big or small, all of your time and energy is uh, appreciated and valuable, so please make that donation to KPOO San Francisco 89.5. This is a very precious um, black-owned radio station here in San Francisco, so we are talking legacy people. All right, we are going to spend the rest of the hour um, celebrating um, uh, Asada Shakur Liberation Day. It was 42 years ago. Well, today, because I'm pre-recording, you will be hearing this two days later. But Tuesday, November 2nd, was 42 years ago that uh, Asada Shakur made her rightful escape from the clutches of America with 3Ks, Inc., and is now um, living in Cuba. All right, like I said, we are going to spend the rest of this hour um, around the liberation um, of Asada Shakur and all that that means. In 2013, Asada Shakur speaks on being shot. In 1973... Uh, Zaid Malik Shakur, Sundiata Akoli, and I, we were on the New Jersey's uh, turnpike. We were stopped by New Jersey state troopers, and I mean, they were out of their minds. You know, my arms went in a split second. They shot me with my arms in the air, and then again in the back. I was left on the ground for what seemed like forever. They finally took me to a hospital where I was kept incommunicado from Monday to Friday. And I don't want to explain what went on uh, in between. Um, But you can imagine, uh, it was torture. Asada Shakur has written, My name is Asada, she who struggles, Shakur, the thankful one, and I am a 20th century century escaped slave because of government persecution. I was left with no other choice than to flee from the political repression, racism, and violence that dominate the U.S. government's policy towards people of color. I am an ex-political prisoner, and I have been living in exile in Cuba since 1984. I have been a political activist most of my life, 
And although the U.S. government has done everything in its power to criminalize me, I am not a criminal, nor have I ever been one. In the 1960s, I participated in various struggles, the Black Liberation Movement, the Student Rights Movement, and the movement to end the war in Vietnam. I joined the Black Panther Party. By 1969, the Black Panther Party had become the number one organization targeted by the FBI's COINTELPRO program. Because the Black Panther Party demanded the total liberation of black people, J. Edgar Hoover called it the greatest threat to the internal security of the country and vowed to destroy it and its leaders and activists. Now we're going to hear in detail those five torturous days at the hands of the New Jersey police uh, while Asada Shakur was in the hospital. Sada Shakur, formerly Joanne Chesamon, who was arrested on the evening of May 2nd, 1973, along with Clark Squire and Zaid Malik Shakur, who was killed by the New Jersey. Asada Shakur, who is now in exile, was a former member of the Black Panther Party and a former member of the Black Liberation Army. Here, she gives testimony regarding her treatment after her capture by the New Jersey police authorities. And this is archived footage of the 1990 International Tribunal on violations of human rights of political and prisoner of war prisoners in the U.S. Beating me. 
they would not stop uh, poking me and, you know, they would say, bang, you know, does it hurt here? Do you feel bad? Do you feel sick here? And, you know, I mean, that went on all night until the next morning uh, when I was taken to the intensive care unit. In the intensive care unit, well, they had to uh, calm down for a while because there were so many nurses and doctors there. Then they moved me to another room, which was the Johnson and Johnson suite. And they closed off the exit from the hallway that went directly into the room where I was kept. And so the people had to go around, the nurses and the doctors had to go around through another room to get into the hospital room where I was so they could virtually control all traffic in and out. And so uh, they just, it was just open season on me for about, I'd say, three or four days. I, uh, I spent with either being uh, beaten, poked, punched with them uh, putting something in my eyes with uh, every day was my last day. They turned up the air condition so that I was freezing to death. Uh, the nurses would come and turn it down. Uh, they would turn it back up again. Uh, my lungs were threatening to collapse um, and they were, you know, trying to do everything so that I would get pneumonia. Did the medical staff participate or acquiesce to this treatment while you were in, um, under their care? Some of them did and some of them didn't. Uh, the first night there was a doctor who was just as bad as the state troopers. I mean, he was a, why did you shoot the trooper? I mean, he didn't know if I shot a trooper or not, but I mean, he just jumped on me and this is this. He uh, believed uh, that he was there on the turnpike. But then some of the nurses were very kind and uh, very supportive and could really see what was happening and saw the viciousness of the, the police. And what happened was that uh, on the, I don't know, it was the third or the fourth day I was there, one of them gave me a call button so that I could call whenever uh, the state troopers came near my, my bed. And, um, through that way, I was able to avoid being further beat up. Also, you know, they, were, they had my leg cuffed to the bed, even though I was half dead, and my leg was swelling, and a lot of the nurses, not a lot, but one or two or three of the nurses protested constantly the way they had my foot cuff, uh, cuffed because it was literally bleeding, literally, you know, uh, sticking in the flesh. Is it your opinion that if it were not for the medical staff being present, that the authorities would have murdered you at that hospital? Well, that's obviously possible. opinion that were it not for the medical staff, the police authorities would, would have murdered you uh, in that hospital with the complicity and compliance of certain doctors? That's definitely a possibility. Were these members of the medical staff that showed human compassion towards you, were they black, were they white, or were they um, both black and white? Black and white. Um, 
the one who uh, gave me the call button was a German nurse. She had a, a German accent. Um, some of the black nurses, they sent me a little package of books, which really saved my life spiritually and in human terms because that was one of the most difficult times of my life. All right, now I'm going to read an article by Dara Cooper, and the contributors are the BYP, the Black Youth Project, and this um, is an amazing organization. It's a platform that highlights the voices and ideas of black millennials. Through knowledge, voice, and action, we work to empower and uplift the lived experience of young black Americans today. So they are the contributors to this um, article titled National Asada Shakur Liberation Day, Activism Undeterred. All right, and this is a piece from Praxis. So you can um, also go to their website. Uh, I think it's just praxis.com and um, find some other pretty cool um, articles there. Okay, this past, uh, and sorry, and this was written in 2014, um, but um, it's still quite relevant because I, I haven't seen anything else for uh, Asada Shakur Liberation Day. All right. This past November 2nd was the 35th anniversary, now we at 42, of a day celebrated by many as Asada Shakur Liberation Day. It is the day former Black Panther Asada Shakur was liberated from a maximum security prison, a day many acknowledge as a celebration of freedom fighters, political prisoners, and exiles. Although Shakur is widely lauded as an activist, freedom fighter, artist, and important public intellectual, the U.S. government persistently characterizes her as an enemy of the state, a terrorist. In May 2013, the FBI placed Shakur on the FBI's most wanted terror list, terrorist list and doubled the bounty for her capture to an outrageous $2 million, even though she has been granted political asylum in Cuba. But as most deaf eloquently declares with the title of his essay about Shakur, the government's the government's terrorists is our community's heroine. Uh, viewed through the lens of the U.S. law enforcement, Shakur is an escaped cop killer, Mostaf explains. Viewed through the lens of many black people, including me, she is a wrongly convicted woman and a hero of epic proportions. Why is there such a drastic difference between the U.S. government versus the people and how they view Asada Shakur? How can we explain why hundreds of thousands of people around the world see Shakur as a hero while the U.S. government continues to perpetuate her vilification and actively pursue her capture? Why are public funds being allocated in an attempt to punish her for the crime of killing a police officer despite overwhelming evidence of her innocence? What we know is that J. Edgar Hoover considered the Black Panther Party the greatest threat to the internal security of the country and launched an attack aimed to neutralize the party, now publicly known as the FBI's COINTELPRO, counterintelligence program. What we also know is that because Shakur was a member of the Black Liberation Movement and the Black Panther Party, she, like many other political prisoners and exiles, was targeted by the FBI's COINTELPRO, uh, COINTELPRO. Prior to Shakur's conviction by an all-white jury for the alleged killing of a police officer, she had been charged six times with bogus criminal cases. In each of these bogus charges, Shakur was either acquitted or charges were dismissed. What we know is that the barrage of investigations and indictments did not stop, but culminated in an ill-fated shootout in 1973 on the New Jersey Turnpike. Imagine 
also how many thousands of dollars are being spent every time they charge her with some criminal case and send her through the court system and how disruptive that is to her life and the lives of the people around her. This is so sick. This shootout resulted in the death of Shakur's comrade, Zaid Shakur, and New Jersey State Trooper Werner Forrester. Forensic evidence demonstrated that Shakur, who was also shot and injured in the shootout, had a shattered clavicle and damaged nerve in her right hand. Shakur's injuries indicated that her hands were raised above her head when she was shot by police. Moreover, Shakur's fingerprints were never found on any guns found at the scene, nor was any gun residue found on her hands. Nevertheless, Shakur was convicted by an all-white jury and sentenced to life, plus 33 years in prison, for aiding and abetting in the murder of her own dear friend, Zaid Shakur, and, and Trooper Forrester. After serving over six years in prison, Shakur escaped from her unjust incarceration and was later granted political asylum in Cuba. The New Jersey state government and FBI have relentlessly pursued Shakur, offering bounties of 50000 a million, and now an astronomical $2 million to capture this mother, grandmother, artist, intellectual, and yes, revolutionary, who is approaching 70 years of age. Fellow freedom fighter and law professor Kathleen Cleaver draws on the historical conjuring of slave catchers in her 2005 essay about the FBI's million-dollar bounty. She says, This extraordinary bounty on the head of a black woman inevitably brings to mind Harriet Tubman, that Underground Railroad conductor whose ability to organize escapes earned a $12,000 price on her head from the state of Maryland. Outraged slave owners added $40,000. Unquote. In an important new essay published in The Guardian, Professor Angela Davis asks a critical question about Shakur's case. What interest would the FBI have in designating a 66-year-old woman, a 66-year-old black woman, who has lived quietly in Cuba for the last three and a half decades as one of the most dangerous terrorists in the world? Davis begins to answer this question with a critical interrogation of the definition of terrorist. A partial, perhaps even determining, answer to this question may be discovered in the broadening the reach of the definition of terror. She conjures the likes of Nelson Mandela and the African National Congress, who were once deemed terrorists by the U.S. government, a term Davis says was abundantly applied to U.S. black liberation activists during the late 1960s and early 1970s, unquote. Many understand the bounty on Shakur, her labeling as a domestic terrorist, and the state's ongoing harassment as a strategy to deter organizers and those involved in contemporary freedom struggles. The ongoing demonization, harassment, arrests, and torture of freedom fighters are intended to create a culture of fear and discourage further activism. We see this with the recent arrest of Palestinian activist Resmea Ode, the silencing and ridicule of political prisoner Mumia Abu Jamal, and the torture of political prisoner Sekou Odinga, to name just a few examples. Historically, we know that the public display of whipped, tortured, or lynched black bodies when they defied their enslavement served exactly this purpose. All right. It says that I can click here to read the rest. Um, I tried to do that, but was not uh, successful. So I'm going to leave it there. Um, and this also just brings me to the uh, uh, to remind you that we just got finished hearing a guilt, guilty verdict 
um, at the International Tribunal 2021, we charge genocide because of this very issue right here that we are talking about. Um, the, the systematic um, attack and, and murder of our black liberation uh, freedom fighters um, that is historic and systemic. So we have, um, again, we have gotten a guilty verdict for this very thing. And actually, uh, there is footage, of course, uh, Sekou Odinga uh, talking about that torture uh, uh, when he was a political prisoner. And of course, Sundiata Koli is uh, still in prison in his 70s. It's been decades and decades. And these extreme sentences, these are all genocidal practices that are continuing to be um, perpetrated by, uh, by the United States or America with three Ks, Inc., as I prefer to call it. All right, we are now going to hear a song that was dedicated to Asada Shakur by Common. Her soul grew weak, away from people so long, 
All right. If you are just joining us, this is Prison Focus Radio. I'm your host, Nube Brown. This is uh, KPOO San Francisco 89.5. And we are uh, spending the hour um, celebrating, honoring, um, acknowledging Asada Shakur. Um, This is considered Liberation Day because in 1979, she was liberated from uh, captivity after six plus years. And so we are now going to continue with um, a 2013 Democracy Now! segment, uh, the former Black Panther Asada Shakur added to FBI's Most Wanted Terror List. Now, this is an audio, um, of course, and I'm going to read a little bit here, but there's a visual on this is quite telling because the the FBI agent that they decide to uh, talk about this uh, adding of uh, Asada Shakur to the FBI's most wanted terror, uh, terrorist list is a black man, of course, surrounded by all white um, FBI agents. Uh, it is... Quite egregious, but uh, again, 2013, and I do suggest that you all uh, check that out. It is, uh, again, Democracy Now! You can just go to democracynow.org, and this is May 2nd, 2013. Um, Definitely a different feel when you've got the uh, visuals. All right. The FBI added Asada Shakur to its most wanted terrorist list today. In addition, the state of New Jersey announced it was adding $1 million to the FBI's $1 million reward for her capture. Shakur becomes the first woman ever to make the list and only the second domestic terrorist to be added to the list. Asada Shakur, the the former Joanne Chesimard, was a member of the Black Panther Party and Black Liberation Army. She was convicted... In the May 2nd, 1973 killing of a New Jersey police officer during a shootout that left one of her fellow activists dead, that would be Zaid Shakur. She was shot twice by police during the incident. In 1979, she managed to escape from jail. Shakur fled to Cuba, where she received political asylum. She once wrote, I am a 20th century escaped slave. Because of government persecution, I was left with no other choice than to flee from the political repression, racism, and violence that dominate the U.S. government's policy towards people of color. In 1998, Democracy Now! aired Shakur reading an open letter to Pope John Paul II during his trip to Cuba. He wrote the message after New Jersey state troopers sent the Pope a letter asking him to call for her extradition. And here it is Asada Shakur, in her own words, 1998, an open letter to Pope John Paul II. This is Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now! I am Amy Goodman. As we go now to an open letter that was written to the Pope on Martin Luther King's birthday by Asada Shakur. Asada Shakur, who was with the Black Liberation Army, a former Black Panther. She's an exile in Cuba. In the United States, she was convicted and sentenced to life in prison for the 1973 murder of a New Jersey state trooper. It's a crime she says she did not commit. She was able to escape from prison. She went to Cuba, and she has written this letter to the Pope. Your Holiness, 
I hope this letter finds you in good health, in good disposition, and enveloped with the spirit of goodness. I must confess that it had never occurred to me before to write you, and I find myself overwhelmed and moved to have this opportunity. Although circumstances have compelled me to reach out to you, I am glad to have this occasion to try and cross the boundaries that would otherwise tend to separate us. I understand that the New Jersey State Police have written to you and asked you to intervene and to help facilitate my extradition back to the United States. I believe that their request is unprecedented in history. Since they have refused to make their letter to you public, although they have not hesitated to publicize their request, I am completely uninformed as to the accusations they are making against me. Why, I wonder, do I warrant such attention? What do I represent that is such a threat? Please let me take a moment to tell you about myself. My name is Asada Shakur, and I was born and raised in the United States. I am a descendant of Africans who were kidnapped and brought to the Americas as slaves. I spent my early childhood in the racist, segregated South. I later moved to the northern part of the country where I realized that black people were equally victimized by racism and oppression. I grew up and became a political activist, participating in student struggles, the anti-war movement, and most of all, in the movement for the liberation of African Americans in the United States. I later joined the Black Panther Party, an organization that was targeted by the COINTELPRO program, a program that was set up by the Federal Bureau of Investigation to eliminate all political opposition to the U.S. government's policies, to destroy the black liberation movement in the United States, to discredit activists, and to eliminate potential leaders under the COINTELPRO program, many political activists were harassed, imprisoned, murdered, or otherwise neutralized. As a result of being targeted by COINTELPRO, I, like many other young people, was faced with the threat of prison, underground, exile, or death. The FBI, with the help of local police agencies, systematically fed false accusations and fake news articles to the press, accusing me and other activists of crimes we did not commit. Although in my case the charges were eventually dropped or I was eventually acquitted, the national and local police agencies created a situation where based on their false accusations against me, any police officer could shoot me on sight. It was not until the Freedom of Information Act was passed in the mid-70s that we began to see the scope of the United States government's persecution 
political activist. At this point, I think that it is important to make one thing very clear. I have advocated and I still advocate revolutionary changes in the structure and in the principles that govern the United States. I advocate self-determination for my people and for all oppressed people inside the United States. I advocate an end to capitalist exploitation, the abolition of racist policies, the eradication of sexism, and the elimination of political repression. If that is a crime, then I am totally guilty. To make a long story short, I was captured in New Jersey in 1973 after being shot with both arms held in the air and then shot again from the back. I was left on the ground to die, and when I did not, I was taken to a local hospital where I was threatened, beaten, and tortured. In 1977, I was convicted in a trial that can only be described as a legal lynching. In 1979, I was able to escape with the aid of some of my fellow comrades. I saw this as a necessary step, not only because I was innocent of the charges against me, but because I knew that the racist legal system in the United States, I would receive no justice. I was also afraid that I would be murdered in prison. I later arrived in Cuba, where I am currently living in exile as a political refugee. The New Jersey State Police and other law enforcement officials say they want to see me brought to justice. But I would like to know what they mean by justice. Is torture justice? I was kept in solitary confinement for more than two years, mostly in men's prisons. Is that justice? My lawyers were threatened with imprisonment and imprisoned. Is that justice? I was tried by an all-white jury without even the pretext of impartiality and then sentenced to life in prison plus 33 years. Is that justice? Let me emphasize that justice for me is not the issue I am addressing here. It is justice for my people that is at stake. When my people receive justice, I am sure that I will receive it too. I know that your holiness will reach your own conclusion, but I feel compelled to present the circumstances surrounding the application of so-called justice in New Jersey. I am not the first or the last person to be victimized by the New Jersey system of justice. The New Jersey State Police are infamous for their racism and brutality. Many legal actions have been filed against them. And just recently, in a class action legal proceeding, the New Jersey State Police were found guilty of having an, quote, officially sanctioned de facto policy of targeting minorities for investigation and arrest, unquote. Although New Jersey's population is more than 78% white, more than 75% 
of the prison population is made up of blacks and Latinos. 80% of women in New Jersey prisons are women of color. There are 15 people on death row in the state, and seven of them are black. A 1987 study found that New Jersey prosecutors sought the death penalty in 50% of cases involving a black defendant and a white victim, but only 28% of cases involving a black defendant and a black victim. Unfortunately, the situation in New Jersey is not unique, but reflects the racism that permeates the entire country. The United States has the highest rate of incarceration in the world. There are more than 1.7 million people in U.S. prisons. This number does not include the more than 500,000 people in city and county jails, nor does it include the alarming number of children in juvenile institutions. The vast majority of those behind bars are people of color, and virtually all of those behind bars are poor. The result of this reality is devastating. One-third of black men between the ages of 20 and 29 are either in prison or under the jurisdiction of the criminal justice system. Prisons are big business in the United States, and the building, running, and supplying of prisons has become the fastest growing industry in the country. Factories are moving into the prisons, and prisoners are forced to work for slave wages. This super-exploitation of human beings has meant the institutionalization of a new form of slavery. Those who cannot find work on the streets are forced to work in prison. Not only are the prisons used as instruments of economic exploitation, they also serve as instruments of political repression. There are more than 100 political prisoners in the United States. They are African Americans, Puerto Ricans, Chicanos, Native Americans, Asians, and progressive white people who oppose the policies of the United States government. Many of those targeted by the COINTELPRO program have been in prison since the early 1970s. Although the situation in prisons is an indication of human rights violations inside the United States, there are other more deadly indicators. There are currently 3,365 people now on death row, and more than 50% of those awaiting death are people of color. Black people make up only 13% of the population, but we make up 41.01% of persons who have received the death penalty. The number of state assassinations has increased drastically. In 1997 alone, 71 people were executed. A special rapporteur appointed by the United Nations Organization found serious human rights violations in the United States, especially related 
to the death penalty. According to his findings, people who are mentally ill were sentenced to death, people with severe mental and learning disabilities, as well as minors under 18. Serious racial bias was found on the part of judges and prosecutors. Specifically mentioned in the report was the case of Mumia Abu-Jamal, the only political prisoner on death row, who was sentenced to death because of his political beliefs and because of his work as a journalist exposing police brutality in the city of Philadelphia. I believe that some people spell God with one O, while others spell it with two. What we call God is unimportant as long as we do God's work. There are those who want to see God's wrath fall on the oppressed and not on the oppressors. I believe that the time has ended when slavery, colonialism, and oppression can be carried out in the name of religion. It was in the dungeons of prison that I felt the presence of God up close. And it has been my belief in God and in the goodness of human beings that has helped me to survive. I am not ashamed of having been in prison. And I am certainly not ashamed of having been a political prisoner. I believe that Jesus was a political prisoner who was executed because he fought against the evils of the Roman Empire, because he fought against the greed of the money changers in the temple, because he fought against the sins and injustices of his time. As a true child of God, Jesus spoke up for the poor, for the meek, for the sick, and the oppressed. The early Christians were thrown into lines then. I will try to follow the example of so many who have stood up in the face of overwhelming oppression. I am not writing to ask you to intercede on my behalf. I ask nothing for myself. I only ask you to examine the social reality of the United States and to speak out against the human rights violations that are taking place. On this day, the birthday of Martin Luther King, I am reminded of all those who gave their lives for freedom. Most of the people who live on this planet are still not free. I ask only that you continue to work and pray to end oppression and political repression. It is my heartfelt belief that all the people on this earth deserve justice, social justice, political justice, and economic justice. I believe it is the only way we will ever achieve peace and prosperity on this earth. I hope that you enjoy your visit to Cuba. This is not a country that is rich in material wealth, but it is a country that is rich in human wealth, spiritual wealth, and moral wealth. Respectfully yours, Asada Shakur, Havana, Cuba. And here's Angela Davis speaking about the FBI's decision to add Asada Shakur to the top 10 most wanted list. 
it was a, a major shock to hear that uh, Asata Shakur has uh, uh, become the first woman to be added to the FBI's most wanted uh, terrorist list. Uh, and then to learn that they're adding another million dollars to uh, the reward, the bounty, uh, really, uh, uh, it seems to me that this act um, incorporates uh, or reflects the, the, the very logic of terrorism. Uh, I can't help but think that it's uh, designed to um, uh, frighten people who are involved in struggles today. Uh, Forty years ago seems as if it were a long time ago, four decades. Uh, however, in the 21st century, at the beginning of the 21st century, we're still fighting around the very same issues. Uh, police violence, uh, uh, healthcare, education, people in prison, and so forth. So I see this as an attack not so much on Asata herself, although of course she uh, deserves uh, 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 to be brought home. She deserves to be able to live out her life uh, uh, in, in, with justice and, and peace. Uh, um, uh, it was wonderful uh, that you allowed people through this uh, program to hear uh, Asata's words. Uh, because 40 years later, people really uh, don't know the details of the case. And I'm not aware of the extent to which she was targeted by the FBI, by the COINTEL program, as, as Lennox uh, pointed out. Uh, and it's, it, it's amazing that uh, uh, um, in 2013, where she is um, living in Cuba as a political refugee, having given having been given political asylum by Cuba, she is still pursued. And actually, this is an invitation for anyone to um, uh, travel to Cuba illegally and to kidnap her and bring her back to the United States, if not uh, uh, shoot her uh, dead. This is, uh, 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 as I said, was a, an extremely um, um, shocking revelation. All right, mind you, Sundiata Akoli, who is now 84 years old, he's been in prison for almost 50 years, Asada Shakur's friend, who was on that New Jersey turnpike with her, is still imprisoned, as well as Dr. Mutulu Shakur, um, her brother, who helped her to escape, still imprisoned. This is genocidal. I'm now going to read a poem by Asada Shakur from her autobiography, Leftovers. What is left? After the bars and the gates and the degradation, what is left? After the lock-ins and the lock-outs and the lock-ups, what is left? I mean, after the chains that get entangled in the gray of one's matter, after the bars that get stuck in the hearts of men and women, what is left? After the tears and disappointments, after the lonely isolation, after the cut wrist and the heavy noose, what is left? I mean, like, after the commissary kisses, and the get your sh off blues after the hustler has been hustled, what is left? After the murder burgers and the goon squads and the tear gas, after the bulls and the bull pens and the bull sh what is left? Like, after you know that God can't be trusted, after you know that the shrink is a pusher, that the word is a whip and the badge is a bullet, what is left? After you know that the dead are still walking, after you realize that silence is talking, that outside and inside are just an illusion, what is left? 
I mean, like, where's the sun? Where are her arms and where are her kisses? There are the lip prints on my pillow. I am searching. What is left? I mean, like, nothing is standstill and nothing is abstract. The wing of a butterfly can't take flight. The foot on my neck is part of a body. The song that I sing is part of an echo. What is left? I mean, like, love is specific. Is my mind a machine gun? Is my heart a hacksaw? Can I make freedom real? Yeah. What is left? I am at the top and bottom of a lower archy. I am an earth lover from way back. I am in love with losers and laughter. I am in love with freedom and children. Love is my sword and truth is my compass. What is left? And here's an excerpt of live footage of Asada Shakur's escape. Between 1 and 4 p.m. on Friday is visiting time at Clinton. Apparently, uh, Joanne Chesimard had some visitors who came to this gate right here at the uh, edge of the institution. Their ID was checked. They went in to visit her uh, at South Hall. South Hall is a maximum security building here. We have 17 women in that building. Uh, they pulled guns, were able to uh, overpower a couple of officers, a male and female officer, and get her out. Put the officers in the back of the van, and they drove the van across an unfenced area in the back of the institution to the adjoining Hundred and State School. There, they got out of the van and fled in vehicle or vehicles, and the officers freed themselves and were uninjured. Well, how many were there? More than one is the best information. They're interviewing staff, inmates, and other possible witnesses right now. How are they able to get in here with guns? That's part of the investigation. There's a sign right there that says anyone coming in is subject to being searched. That's true. Uh, I don't know how they did it. Uh, I think our investigation will determine that. What about the identities of the people? Uh, at some point, didn't they have to sign in here and show something? Yes, they have to be on an approved visitors list. Uh, these people showed ID and were on the visitors list. Uh, they were able to come in that way. Well, then you must have identities on them. Uh, yes, that's why they're looking for them. I don't have them. The state police are doing the investigation now. Were the guards harmed in any way? No, no, no injuries. Uh, they were both unharmed shaken but unharmed. But the people who went out with Chesimard and Chesimard are considered armed and dangerous. These people have visited her before? I don't know. I don't know at this point. Can you give us any idea who, no. who, who, the, who the people are that checked in here and showed their IDs and were permitted to enter? I don't know. Joe, do we have anyone on that? I don't think we can discuss that now. That's part of the future squad. How many people, though? How many were there? Well, we've got three possibly four people. Uh, men or women? Or no, men. Men. Three, three, possibly four people. Uh, we're not sure of the fourth, but the fourth may have been in uh, one of the cars that waited outside. Can you give us a description? Love. Love is contraband in hell, because love is an acid that eats away bars. But you, me, and tomorrow hold hands and make vows that struggle will multiply. The hacksaw has two blades. The shotgun has two barrels. We are pregnant with freedom. We are a conspiracy. Asada Shakur from Asada, an autobiography. We love you, Asada Shakur. We are so happy that you are free. All power to the people. Get ready for work week with Steve Seltzer. <laughs>